Hey, what's it like being a dad? Mr. Clams has been sleeping for two days, Daddy. Goodbye, Mr. Clams. No! All right, just slow down a little bit. Stop yelling at me! I don't think that... (gasps) Oh! Okay, okay. All right, and that is why we always wear our seatbelt. And that's the birds and the bees. Proud of you, son. Run, huh? Run, it's gonna blow! Have I told you lately? I know, Dad. You love me. You tell me all the time. Actually, I was going to tell you I think you're beautiful inside and out. Whatever. So, John, you ready for that? Because it's coming. For those of you who are dads, happy Father's Day. I trust you've already had somebody in your life that has given you encouragement, said how much they enjoy the experience, how much they're praying for you in this journey, and that they're going to be with you every step of the way. Not everyone in the room has had a storybook childhood or a storybook father, and I certainly understand that. There's some in our room this morning who are single dads doing the best they possibly can. There are single moms in here this morning, as you saw a few months ago, who are trying to do everything they possibly can to be both. But our prayers and our hope as a church is that we support you and encourage you and pray for you, because to be honest with you, you're going to face much of that and then some. And so we want you to know that we're here for you in that journey. I don't know if you read scripture with imagination like I do, but have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered whether Adam and Eve ever ate apples again? Have you ever wondered whether Jonah ever went fishing again or even near a body of water again? Have you ever wondered if he even got in a boat again? Have you ever wondered if Moses ever tried doing the staff on the water thing again just to see if it happened twice? Well, obviously, you don't read the scripture with a lot of imagination because you would have thought of those things. I know you do. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have a conversation with the fathers of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We've been in the book of Daniel for the last few weeks, and I couldn't help but wondering, knowing today was Father's Day, what it would be like to go back and have a conversation with Daniel's father. 
or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's father. They tried to do everything they possibly could to instill values and strength and stability into their lives, only to find them pulled out of that such an early age and thrust into an environment that wasn't going to receive any of what they had to say and certainly not believe in the God they believed in. And I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating at some point in life to have a conversation with Daniel's father or the other three boys' father and hear them say, yes, they did it. They stood strong and firm. I think you already know this, but the real test of parenthood is not necessarily how they act when they're in your home, but what they become when they leave. The real test of parenthood is not necessarily how they act when they're in your home, but what they become when they leave. And I couldn't help but wonder what it would be like to have a conversation with the fathers of these three men or these four men to hear them say, thank you, God, that in the middle of all the things they had to face and the challenges of being in that kind of context, in a world that doesn't embrace the God we believe in, in a world that doesn't even want to invite them into that presence, they stood strong. I had a fascinating conversation a few weeks ago. I can't give you the details behind it because of the sensitive nature of where this person lives. But they happen to, of all things in the world, have a dinner or a luncheon with the archbishop who happened to be over the Coptic Christians who lost their lives in Egypt a few months ago. He said it was one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had. And even the archbishop said it was one of the most fascinating conversations I ever could have imagined having with these parents, especially some of these moms. They had two concerns, as you can well imagine. Two concerns. That their sons would stay faithful and not recount their faith or recant or renege on their faith. And that those who slaughtered them would find Jesus. I sat there listening to the story with my mouth hanging open thinking, you wanted them to find Jesus, I wanted them to go to. I wanted them dead, you wanted them saved. Two things they were concerned about, that their sons would stand faithful to their commitment to Jesus and that those who killed them would find Jesus. The real test of parenthood is not necessarily how they are when they're in your midst. The real test of parenthood is what they become when they leave. And these dads, I've got to believe, if we would have ever had the opportunity to have a conversation with them, would be thrilled. We're in the book of Daniel, and I encourage you to take some time this morning to open your Bibles, your iPads, your iPhones, your i-something, and follow along. Yesterday on Phone Tree, I asked you to, if you didn't hang up, and by the way, we know who you are, <laughs> to read chapters 2 to 5. Now, that's a lot of scripture, and I get that. I really want to whet your appetite for the Word of God. I've been saying that for 20 years almost, and I, I love the fact that many of you respond that way. You do read it beyond what we do on Sunday morning. There's no way I'm going to read all four of these chapters or three of these chapters, but there's so much truth and power, and I need to walk through it to build to the end to draw some conclusions about what I see in this section, although we will do some of that along the way. This is an amazing story. Somebody said to me at the first service, you should have started at 8 o'clock in the morning if you ever expected to get through all of Daniel in four Sundays. 
And that wasn't necessarily my intention. It was just simply to allow you to explore one of the most amazing books in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 2, the king had a dream. And as he has done and will do in the future, he wants it to be interpreted. So he calls all the wise people of his group, and Daniel was one of those men, and said, I want you to interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. So not only do you have to interpret the dream, you have to tell me what I dreamt. If you don't, I'm going to kill you. Now that's a lot of pressure to come up with an answer. Obviously the guy's delusional. But that's exactly what he expects of these men. I want you to tell me what I dreamt, and then I want you to tell me the meaning. Otherwise, I will take your life. Daniel's first reaction, second reaction, fascinate me, and I have to stop and point it out. The very first thing he wanted to do was to get those three friends of his together to do the second thing that he wanted to do, and that was to pray. Two things about that. Both of them tied into what I just said a moment ago. Some of you face horrible situations where you work, where you live, or the people that are around you. Some of you are overwhelmed by the possibilities of being able to live out your faith or make it in your faith in a world that doesn't embrace that. And one of the best encouragements I can ever give you is to make sure there are people in your life who are praying with you and for you. That you're involved in a small group, uh, an accountability group, uh, a class of some kind, a gathering of some kind where you're not feeling alone and you're not alone. That at a moment's notice, no matter what you face, you can call somebody and say, you have no idea what I'm going to deal with tomorrow, but I need to know that you're praying for me, and I need to know that you really understand enough to want to pray. The second thing about that, and write this down somewhere, literally, seriously, write this down somewhere. Prayer to them was their first response, not their last resort. And that's a hugely powerful statement. Prayer was their first response, not their last resort. How many times have I seen people go through deep waters and I said, have you prayed? Well, oh boy, well, yeah, we should have done that. Now, it doesn't mean they haven't or haven't even thought about it, but so often we see it as the last resort. Well, at least we ought to pray. And what I love about these guys, it's their first response, not their last resort. And then secondly, that you have people in your life that are praying for you when you're going through difficult times or you've built some relationships in your life and realize you can't be isolated or insulated from the world around you. You've got to have solid friends, a believer, a group of believers, a group of friends that at a moment's notice when you're facing challenges, you can call on them and they're going to pray for you. I was listening to a, a, a seminar by Martin Sanders, the pastor that was here a number of months ago. We all loved and adored him and he, was sharing in it, and he shared a story in the context of that about Peter Wagner, who's a professor in Fuller Seminary, who did research among pastors and found a fascinating premise. He said, when you ask a pastor if you prayed enough, they're never going to say, yep, I'm really, I'm praying way too much. They're always going to say, no, I probably need to pray some more, I should pray some more. Even if I ask ordinary Christians, or ordinary, even if I ask any average Christian, and I say to them, do you pray enough? They'd probably say, no, I probably should pray some more. Peter Wagner did a study and found there was a direct correlation not between the success of the church and the pastor's prayer life, but between the success of the church and the people he had praying for him and over him. It wasn't even his prayer life. But there was a direct correlation in all the research that he did between the pastor's success and the success of the ministry and the success of that church by the amount of people that he had praying for him and over him. Specifically, Philippians, Colossians prayers that are some of the most profound in all the New Testament. 
These guys knew there was no way they were going to survive this without the power of God overshadowing them. And the very first thing they wanted to do was to make sure they had friends praying with them and then they sought the power of God. Look at their prayer in chapter 2, verse 20. Praise chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. I love the fact that God continues to bring new people to our church. As someone said to me a few weeks ago, I, to be honest with you, didn't even know where Daniel was. And, and I try to be sensitive to that because I know we're not all on the same page and haven't all grown up in church. So I, I want to give you time, but I really do want you to be in the Word of God. You're going to see it on the screen, but I also want you to be in the Word of God. Daniel chapter 2, it's in the Old Testament, verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power, they're his. So when I lack wisdom and I don't know where to turn, I want to turn to him because they're his. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us a dream of the king. And James, he said, you lack wisdom, ask God. You want to know what to do? Ask me. You want to know which way to go? Ask me. And so Daniel and his friends do. God reveals to Daniel what the dream was, and he goes in the middle of that chapter and reveals it to the king. And he starts by saying this. I'm not going to read it all, but he starts by saying this. King, I need you to know no individual, ordinary individual can do what you ask. But there is a God in heaven who can one of the things that I'm always asked is, where is God or where is or answers to life or trying to figure out the answers to life? And I've, I've learned through the years to be honest enough to say, I honestly have no idea. But I know there's a God in heaven who does have the answers. And I know there's a God in heaven who will walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know there's a God in heaven who will never leave you or forsake you if you trust in him. Every week of my life, every week of my ministry life, some point or the other, similar to what happened in Charleston this week, similar to what happened in the funeral that we did on Monday night of a 37-year-old, where is God in the middle of those things? And I don't always know the answer to that, but I do know there's a God in heaven and one that I call on, one that I find my strength in, and one that I ask to walk with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. King, there's no God in heaven. There's no individual man that can answer that, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And then he tells the king what the dream is all about. He talks to him about a statue that has a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and a belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet that are partly iron and partly clay. And he begins to describe that. And then he goes on in verse 36 to unpack it and tell him what it's all about. And it's what he says in verse 37. Your majesty, you're the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you all of this. He's given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he's placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air. Whatever they, wherever they live, he has made you rule over them. And then he begins to define exactly what's going to happen as one kingdom follows another and follows another. And in verse 44, he said, in those times, the God of heaven is going to set a kingdom up that's never going to be destroyed. Nor will be left to another people that will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever this is the meaning of the vision the rock cut out of the mountain great king the great god has shown the king what will take place in the future the dream is true and the interpretation is as well and then the king responds in verse 47 surely your god has revealed this to you when you read that story you're familiar with anything in the book of daniel and there's a lot of mystery to it and a lot of prophecy that goes with it 
Throughout the years, numbers have taken uh, a lot of those sections of Scripture and try to either predict the future or at least figure out what things happen in sequence and when's this going to take place and when's that going to take place. And a lot of it has come true. A lot of it will come true in the kingdom of God that is referred to in this end section of Scripture. There will come a day when the king itself and the Lord of gods and the Lord of lords will come and reign and rule and set this world right back up on its right side again like he did at the very beginning. There will come that day. And a lot of Daniel is prophetic in nature and a lot of the aspects of what Daniel is saying are absolutely trying to put all the pieces together as to what's going to happen. It's kind of like John in the book of Revelation describing a mystery that no one has ever seen. And so how do you put that into words that make sense for anyone to understand? And that's a lot of what it's all about. In this particular case, this kingdom of the Babylonians is going to fall. And the Medes and the Persians are going to come in. And then that kingdom is going to fall. And the Romans are going to come in. And the story continues to go on. Until the kingdom of God ultimately reigns and rules. And a lot, all of that is true. But I sometimes wonder if there's another possible interpretation. Not necessarily that I want to change it in any way at all. But I do want to look at it maybe from another vantage point. We all have dreams about our future. We know what we would like it to look like. Now, obviously, not to the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. His dream was to make himself look important and great, to show how powerful he was. He wanted the world to take notice. And in his case, he accomplished all of that. He was most likely the greatest and most powerful of his day. We have dreams, too. Smaller than his. We want to know we matter. We're looking for significance. We never say that. We never go out looking that way or talking that way, but we do make sure or want to make sure that people recognize that we're here. We want to be noticed. We, we want people to think we're special. We, we build a Facebook page because we believe that everyone in the world is interested in our lives. We count success by how many followers and Twitter friends we have. Or we build our image of success on our looks or having the right look or our athletic ability or popularity or being in the right crowd or maybe on our possessions. Because after all, the one with the most toys wins, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with having things, good looks, great talent, Athletic ability, nothing wrong with Facebook, even though I'm not on it. Nothing wrong with following Twitter and all the things that go with that. Not at all. But if that's where you find value and significance, you, like the end of the story, are going to come up way short of what you were looking for. The dreamer comes along and interprets this and says, look, as golden and as great and as valuable as it looks, the foundation is flawed and weak. You've got feet of clay and a simple rock will pull the whole thing down. There's nothing wrong with having those things or acquiring those things, but if that's where we find value and significance, like the king will never rest well, will be haunted with anxiety, will be afraid of getting older, and wonder if we have enough. God says, whatever you build your life on, if it's not as a foundation with me that you build on top of that, it's feet of clay and it will crumble. Because what you build your life on will set the course for your life. That's why he said in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers are laboring in vain. And Jesus said, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a solid foundation. 
And Jesus will later say, what is the value if you gain the entire world and lose your own soul? You want to know where you can find value and significance? Let me give it to you in at least two ideas, two concepts. One of the best places to find value is that the God of the universe shaped you, formed you, and made you. Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made by the hands of creative God. The God of the universe made you. The God of the universe shaped you. The God of the universe brought you into being. I don't know about you, but that ought to make you feel pretty good. That God wanted me on this planet so much that he formed and shaped me and made me who I am and then gave me to my parents so that I could be raised and find value and significance in the fact that the God of the universe wanted me here. And then secondly, that the God of the universe loved you so much, even while you were going your own way, spitting in his face, still sinning, sent his son to die on a cross, take your sins, offer you forgiveness and grace and the opportunity to start life all over again and eternal life. That's a pretty good deal. Isn't it? That the God of the universe loved you so much, valued you so much, found so much significance in you that while you were sinning, he sent his son to die in your behalf and offers you grace and amazing love and, by the way, wants to spend all eternity with you. Some of us don't even want to be around one another. But the God of the universe wants to spend time with you. So much time that he gave you an opportunity to come to heaven to be with him through Jesus Christ our Lord and to spend forever with him. Now, I don't know who you want to spend time with that you don't always get to. Maybe there's somebody in your life that if I just had a few moments, if I could call the president or the, somebody else and I, I'd just love to have lunch with you, got a couple of hours, he'd probably say No. <laughs> Do you not find it amazing that the God of the universe so loved you that he made you and shaped you and formed you and then the God of the universe wants to spend all eternity with you? That's pretty cool. Want to find value and significance? King, it's not in stuff. It's not in acquisitions. It's not in a bigger kingdom. It's not in statues of gold. It's in Christ and Christ alone. The story goes on. In chapter 4, he's got another dream. This one's of impending doom and judgment. Daniel, again, comes in to interpret it. Now we're in chapter 4, verse 24. Your majesty, I need to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to be driven away from your people and live with the wild animals, and you're going to eat grass like a rock, like an ox. In light of that, which is what the therefore always means in Scripture in verse 30, 27, in light of knowing that, that your kingdom is going to come crumbling down and that you're going to be sent away from your people and you're going to spend your rest of your days with wild animals, my encouragement would be to you to repent. Repent of your sins, realize what you have done, and embrace the God of the universe. That would be my advice to you. Look what the king does to that advice, or with that advice, verse 29 of chapter 4. Twelve months later, Nothing in between, nothing else said. Twelve months later, the king's walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And he said, is this not the great Babylon that what? I have built. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence by what? My mighty power and for my majesty. Even verse 37, 31, even as those words were on his lips, God's word came true. He ends up being thrust out of that, losing it all, ends up eating grass like an animal. Until the end, 
of that time, verse 34 of chapter 4, I raised my eyes toward heaven, my sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him forever and ever. And he begins to talk about his journey of being able to understand that the God of the universe is where he should have put his trust and hope to begin with. And the story with him ends. It moves into chapter 5 with his son coming into power. The son throws a big party, like anybody in those contexts did. Threw a big party, invited everybody that could come. All the remnants, when they captured Jerusalem and took over the city, they took out some of the sacred items of the temple and they're kind of ignoring, kind of making light of the relics of the Jewish nation, abusing what it is that they understand God has set his hand on. All of a sudden, in the middle of that party, the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the walls where we get the phrase, what? The writing's on the wall. There's a lot of phrases that we get from the word of God. That's one of them. Verse 6 says, his face turned pale and he was frightened. His legs became weak and his knees were knocking. No kidding. That's how I would respond if I saw that taking place. He summons all the wise men, just like his father did, gets him to interpret it, and promises great reward for anyone who does. Daniel comes into the picture again as the only one who can. And then he says to him this, you can keep your gifts. I'm not doing this for a reward. I'm not doing this for my own glory or my own benefit. I want to be honest enough to tell you the truth. Let me tell you the story of your father. Everything he had came from God. But instead of recognizing it, he became proud and arrogant and lost it all, which brought him to his knees, and he finally acknowledged the God Most High. And you knew all of that, but instead you ignored it. You didn't acknowledge God who holds your life in his hands. So let me tell you what the writing means. You've been weighed on the scales, and you came up short. You've been weighed in the balance. You've been weighed on the scales, and you're found wanting, and you're going to lose it all. And right after the prophecy is delivered, he dies. Hundreds of years later, Jesus said, what are the benefits if you gain the entire world and lose your own soul? Two things that on Father's Day I can't help but notice out of this section of Scripture. You can take me to task if I'm making wrong applications. Certainly, I'm open to that. But when I began to read this and read those stories, two things immediately came to my mind as I got near the end of chapter 5 and began to unpack what the story was looking at, what I was seeing in it. First is obviously the dad, King Nebuchadnezzar, and it's a reminder that it's never too late. It's never too late. I hear stories all the time from people who said, I've walked away from God so long, I've done my own thing, I've climbed my own ladder, I've done all the wrong stuff. There's no hope for me. And I'll remind them every once in a while with stories like this and say, it's never too late. But you do need to recognize that the God of the universe gave you everything you had. And it's not by your own power that we hear in the American context. It's not by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's because the God of the universe gave it to you. And you need to acknowledge that, to embrace it, and recognize it. It's never, ever too late to come to a realization that I'm a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Now, most of you are here this morning, or all of you are here, obviously, this morning, but most of you probably know Christ as your Savior. But I got to believe that when you leave this place and you have conversations with your friends or maybe family members, you've heard that phrase, 
It's too late. God will never take me in. I'll never be able to turn it around. There's no hope for me at all. And my encouragement to you is use examples like this and stories like this to say it's never too late. It's never too late to find the God of the universe and live the rest of your life for him. But there's a second piece that just jumped out in this story to me. And that was the guy who finally realized all of that, but sadly never passed it on to the next generation. Who finally came to the conclusion that this really is true and there really is a God who gave me all that I have and never passed it on to the next generation. And so this next king who takes over loses it all and eventually his own life. And it never got passed along, that understanding of who God was and what he could do. So my challenge to you as men, as leaders of your home, as people of influence, make sure that what you have found in Christ, you do everything you possibly can to live it out and pass it on so that those who come behind us will find us faithful. You've heard me tell the story on a number of occasions about my dad. And so on Father's Day, it's a perfect day to talk about him. He grew up in a Roman Catholic environment. Went to church sporadically, didn't know that much about it, but went fairly faithfully with his family and wanted to get married. And if you know anything about the Roman Catholic context, if you both aren't Catholic or aren't whatever they were, and her case was Presbyterian, we can't marry you. And so he said, well, then I'll switch. And so he started going to that church that pastor married them and it was nothing wrong with and I want to be careful with this I just already said the word Presbyterian but in that particular context they preach universalism which basically was give it your best shot we're all going to heaven anyhow that's not what a lot of them teach and many of them don't but that one did and so that's what we did we just gave it our best shot until a barber of all things shared the plan of salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ with my dad and at a very old age older age not very old but at a much older age than teens and 20s and 30s he said that's the truth and he embraced Christ as a savior it changed everything in his life he immediately made sure that my mom understood what had taken place in his life and he brought her to an event where that moment she accepted Christ as savior and the very next thing he wanted to do was to make sure he found a church that preached the gospel to share the story of Christ from beginning to end. And it, they knew it as the truth. And so at that particular moment, we ended up at a CNMA church. We didn't know what CNMA was at that point, but we ended up there and obviously have been CNMA ever since, Christian Missionary Alliance. It's not the fact that he took them to that church or that denomination that always stood out in my mind. What always has stood out in my mind is this man who for so many years didn't know the truth and then found the truth. The very first thing that he wanted to do was to live it out in front of his family. And to make sure that that family was in a Bible-believing, gospel-teaching, biblical church that shared the truth of the gospel of Jesus and that salvation was in him and him alone. But he didn't depend on the church for their spiritual development. He lived it out. We had devotions. We had prayer life. This was a man who barely made it through eighth grade, who was one of the smartest men I've ever met in all of my life. 
who made sure that his family had devotions. They understood the power of the word of God. They shared time together. They had moments where they just simply talked about what God was doing and to make sure that everything in him was passed on to the next generation. Now, I'm privileged to have all of my siblings heavily involved in churches today. I'm privileged to have two girls who love Jesus to their soul, who married two godly men who have three children who love Jesus. And I still attribute it to the fact, number one, of the grace of God. And secondly, from someone who knew that the primary responsibility of a man of God is to pass it on to the next generation and to make sure that it's lived out every day of life. I love George, I love George Bush, and whether you like him or not doesn't matter, but I, I love both of those guys, and I, I love listening to him the other day when he said, the best job I ever had. The guy was president of the United States, for heaven's sakes. He said, the best job I ever had was being a dad. And bar none, I'd agree. So my prayer is that for you or maybe a friend of yours who thinks it's too late, man, show them the love of Jesus and where strength and life and all of that really come from in the God of the universe. And if you're a follower of Jesus, man, just pass it on to the next generation. Don't let it up to the church. We'll partner with you like you can't believe in being able to help your children develop, but don't leave it up to us. Live it out day after day. Pray for them on a regular basis. And wait for that day when they find the Jesus that you love and adore. I guarantee you, nothing else you'll ever gain in life will match it. God, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for my dad. Thank you for men all over this auditorium who have lived it out. First and second and third generation who are continuing to live it out and really impacting the lives of those around them, those who follow them, those who you've entrusted into their care. And so on this Father's Day, we acknowledge the God of the universe who gives us life. So valued us that you made us and shaped us and sent your son to die on a cross for us. And for any dad that we come into sphere with or any person that we come into contact with who doesn't believe that there's any hope for them, help us to share and show the love of Jesus. And for those of us who have the opportunity to impact the next generation, help us to do it really, really well. Not all of us in this room have a storybook relationship with our families, and I'm aware of that, but all of us in this room have the impact to move from here forward, not backwards, but forward, and touching the lives of those that you have allowed us the privilege of coming into contact with. So bless them in that journey. Help us as dads of people of influence to make a difference in a world that is so unbelievably desperate for answers. May they find it in us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Have a great, great day.